Hi, and welcome to Incluse This. I'm your host, Sarah Kerwin, and this is a movement for disability equity. Today, we're talking with Jordan Saunders, and we're talking about how powerful words are. Jordan Saunders is a speech-language pathologist, a disability inclusion consultant, author, and resource generator. She is the founder of The Resource Key, a business providing consulting services that use innovative approaches, research-based industry resources, and advising companies to ensure people with disabilities are included and also making meaningful connections with brands. She's the owner of one of the largest resources group with more than 15,000 followers. Jordan has written several articles for nonprofit magazines and organizations and online resources. Her work has been featured in USA Gymnastics, American Speech-Language Hearing Association, MarketWatch, Association of University Centers on Disability, and the Kennedy Center. Jordan established one of the first resource websites for students interested in the field of speech-language pathology, Future SLPs, which has received recognition worldwide. Recently, she created a program that infuses art and reading literacy skills entitled Design, Read, Create. Jordan is the author of Our Reading Literacy Kitchen, Fresh Approaches to Target Reading Literacy Skills. And with that, let's dive in. Welcome to Incluse This, Jordan. I am super thrilled to be here with you today talking about words, words, and more words. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I am honored to be here with you on this podcast. And words can be used in a positive way or a negative way. So you and I met virtually last September. And I remember exactly why I got a hold of you. Because I all of a sudden got pretty active on LinkedIn. And I wanted to see who was posting in the disability equity and inclusion space. And I just remember seeing all of your posts that were very uh, well done, well messaged. I completely understood what it is that your company, The Resource Key, does in this space. And I just really wanted to reach out to you and learn from you, which I've already been doing. And I'm just really looking forward to learning more as you and I continue to partner and have conversations and and learn and move forward together in this space and just do our best to bring disability to the forefront of that greater diversity conversation. During the first virtual meet and greet we had over Zoom, I remember using the word able-bodied and then you use the word non-disabled, which kicked off this incredible discussion about words the intent behind them, the power they hold, and the effect they have on others. And that's really what led us to being here together today. Yes, for me, I have read a lot of information and how these words are used. Really looking at the impact of these words. I use the word non-disabled because it is a neutral term. Anyone at any point can have a disability at any time. So I consider myself to be non-disabled. So I think it is important though, to read the history behind some of the words that we use. What happens when words change or things shift on an individual level sometimes, if we think words are negative and we should no longer use them, we want everyone to start using the new words immediately, but it's not that easy sometimes. For example, I was reading an article from the New York Times, and in the article, it specifically stated how historians have traced America's welfare system to England's 1601 poor law. And in that, the word able body is included in this law. I was reading uh, this, I think it was about two days ago, and I think that's interesting because 1601, let's say, what is that, 400 years ago? over 400 years ago. So I think that's important to point out because able-bodied, according to this New York Times article, has been used for many years. And it's hard to 
stop using certain terms sometimes because maybe on an individual level, we want someone to stop using the terms because we feel that it may be offensive. But then you look at the system, the structure, the history behind these words, and it's not that simple sometimes when we look at it from the broader perspective. Also, able-bodied is still used in some government reports as well. So that's why I think it's important to listen to one another, understand how words are used in different contexts, because even non-disabled has some controversy too, because people with disabilities are a minority group, and may I add one of the largest minority groups. So when we look at, I use the non-disabled, but if we look at I'm black, and if someone were to say, that they are not that they are non-black, then it wouldn't make sense in those contexts because we usually don't say we are non-black. So it's never as straightforward as we would like it to be, but that's why I think it ultimately comes down to continuing to have these conversations like we're having and keeping the dialogue open. So I want to make something very clear before we move on because I'm sure it won't be the last time I say this throughout our talk, but we have to be willing to listen, communicate, be patient, and research on our own to delve into some of the words we use, why we use them, providing the context, what is the history behind them. And I think this sparks continued ongoing dialogue because just because we use these specific words today does not mean we are going to use those same exact words one month later, two years later, or even next week. I think the important thing um, to remember in there is that it is also scary when we don't know the appropriate terms to use and we don't know the right words to use. What you and I have talked about is that it is really important to just have the conversations, even if we are making those mistakes along the way. That's okay. Let's have the conversation because they are ever-evolving terms and words, and so they're going to change, and that's fine. Then we'll evolve and change with them. I'm glad that you expanded a little bit upon the able-bodied piece because we will touch on that a little bit later. Um, but I just want to talk a little bit about the history of the disability community. And historically, people with disabilities have been erased from mainstream culture, right? So those of us who are living with disabilities find these smaller, more supportive groups within the disability community because this is a space where we can feel free and comfortable to talk about our experiences and our feelings. For me, I found that space when I started playing wheelchair basketball. I was an assistant hospital administrator and public information officer for Rancho Los Amigos National Rehabilitation Center. It was really the first space where I could go and people understood what fatigue was. We shared some similar symptoms, day-to-day uh, -day symptoms, but also had very different experiences with our disabilities. So I definitely feel like it's a little awkward for me to talk freely and openly about what I experience with my disabilities because there's a lack of understanding because we're not educating well enough. People have a tendency to feel sad or sorry. Sometimes they're just completely uncomfortable or uninterested. For me, it's more that I'll just like pepper it into a conversation because I'm so used to it, right? So I'll just say, oh, yeah, well, I have a, I was diagnosed, you know, 10 years ago and I move on with the story. But I forget that for them, they stop on that and think, oh, my gosh, I, I really need to address that MS. She's sharing this with me and I need to address that. But it's more for me just adding to the story, if that makes sense, uh, or adding context to the story, I guess. But it usually turns into a conversation about when I was diagnosed, what kind of symptoms I have, and what their father's aunt's daughter does for her MS, which I should for sure do for mine. <laughs> so if our intention is to make it possible for disabled people to find an increased level of comfort and acceptance like in the wider non-disabled world, then we all have to get comfortable talking about disability, right? Including me. 
And that's obviously much easier said than done because it makes people feel anxious to think about saying the wrong thing like we just touched upon. And so again, I'll go back to when you and I first spoke, we both agreed that having the conversations and making the mistakes that we're bound to make is much more important than not having the conversations at all. There are a lot of articles written about choosing words for talking about disability. We also see articles about the language of disability and disability microaggressions, um, which are also commonly, I guess, within the disability community known as ableist things that people say. You know, before we move on any further, I just feel like some of our listeners may not be familiar with the term ableist. So I just want to start there and figure out what all this means. Jordan, would you untangle this mess of confusion? Yes. So what this means, what's the difference between a words I use or the language I use or what's a microaggression against people with disabilities? Dictionary definition of ableism is discrimination or prejudice against individuals with disabilities. So it could also be systematic exclusion, oppression of people with disabilities. And this is often expressed and reinforced through the language that we use that could be demeaning or looking down on others, thinking that someone is lesser than someone else. So an example of this would be, let's take the word confined. So instead of someone, ableist language could be, oh, she is confined to a wheelchair. Someone can say instead, she is a wheelchair user. So that's giving you an example of ableist language and sometimes the context that we may hear this word being used and how that could be taken as something that could be demeaning or something that makes someone feel lesser. Crazy is another word that we use a lot on a daily basis to describe a number of different things, but that's also ableist language. So instead of saying, my family is crazy about football, maybe saying something like, my family loves football. So those are some examples regarding ableist language. So it's very interesting when you talk about the wheelchair user. That's one thing that I've had to learn. Um, You know, the wheelchair is really an extension of the person and a, a representation of independence, right? I do find it hard, though, when I read articles where some people are talking about disability words and some people are talking about disability language. Now, words are obviously just like smaller pieces of the language that we use. How do you define those? Why are they different and why are they both important? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we look at, I mean, words are ultimately, like you said, uh, the smaller units of the language in a whole as it's all related, I should say. So I think it's important, though, to look at the words first to understand the meaning behind when we use these different words. And then when you're using it in your everyday language, I think it's important to look at the context surrounding how you're using these words, because that ultimately can be the factor of, all right, I have this word, now I'm going to use it in my the course of the lang- in the language and how I talk around my friends or in the community. And all of those things look different based on the context surrounding how we're using them or the way we're putting together the syntax of how we're putting together these using these words and the context, just like the examples I gave, and how much of an impact the word can have when it's used in 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 different settings or in or the way it's used when we're discussing um, different things. So I want to touch on microaggression because I know we talked about ableist language, ableism, all of those different pieces. So microaggression is something that's, it's subtle. 
you know, you're, it's unconscious maybe, or the person maybe unintentionally is expressing something, but it's takes on many forms in different settings, but it, it can be a prejudice, you know, or discrimination to whoever you're talking to. And you may not even realize you're doing that. So, and an example f- for me is I have naturally curly hair and I remember going to an interview and someone, I don't think they intentionally meant it, but it was a microaggression because someone said, oh, are you planning to wear your hair like that on if you start this job? So that's an example of a microaggression. Maybe they weren't intentionally, I don't know if they were intentionally meaning it, but it was a microaggression and it and it was discriminatory because it was talking about my you know hair and maybe there's no other ways that I could wear my hair. So in the within the disability community, I think it's it goes back to using the word confined maybe or using the word crazy. Crazy is one that probably sticks out the most because it's something that we've probably all at some point use that word not intending to hurt someone, but it could be hurtful in the sense of if someone has any type of mental health, it's, you know, that's a term that a lot of times crazy is loosely used in everyday conversation. And maybe it's because we haven't taken time to think of a different word, or maybe there's not a word that came to mind at the time, but that could be taken as well as a microaggression. Yeah, I think that I use the word when I just say, oh, that's so crazy. Like, that is a very common thing that in the past I have said, and that's one thing I've really had to be cognizant of. I struggle with depression and anxiety. I feel like that's something that I need to be more cognizant of as well, because those are hurtful words. I've used crazy as well. I think it just in the context of just, like I said, every day. And it has made me, as I read more and delve, it makes you more conscious and it makes us more, when we do the work and and take the time to read and listen to others, I think it makes us more intentional when we're having these different conversations to choose a different word. Absolutely. And that kind of goes back to uh, the first convert or the first episode that I had with Molly Bloom. And we were talking just about the intention behind the words and how we can choose to be more intentional with the words and the language that we use. Now, would this be a micro or yeah, microaggression if someone says to me, well, you don't look like you have a disability. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's one I've seen a a lot, too, in terms of uh, when I'm reading different things. There's a lot of articles about that's a very one up there in terms of what's crazy as well that is just almost um a very marginalizing term or dismissive i guess in a way it's a dismissive term so something that's very real to you and part of your identity is just so like flippantly dismissed so yeah that does those words do have real meaning and real power and before we move on We've talked a lot about ableism, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, one more term, which is something that I've just learned about recently, which is anti-Black ableism. And I've done a lot of research with with Colin Kaepernick's media group around disability justice and policing in prisons. There is one journalist, her name is Talila A. Lewis, and she writes a lot of the articles for his media group. And she says that Anti-black ableism is redundant and contradictory simultaneously because ableism and anti-blackness are mutually inclusive and mutually dependent. So you can't have one without the other and you can't adjectively, excuse me, adjectively modify one with the other because where one is, they both must be. Each oppression does modify how a person experiences the other oppression. 
So they do modify the other in the literal sense. Now, I think this is really interesting, and it goes back to the conversation that we've had about uh, intersectioning, intersectionality and intersectioning of disability, race, disability, gender, disability, sexual orientation, etc. Do you have experience around the anti-Black ableism uh, comments, maybe those microaggressions that you could share with us so that we could identify or help to um, help to see those more in our daily life so that then we can be more intentional with our words? So I wouldn't be able to speak on this. And I say this because I think you you were the first person that brought this word up and I I didn't know what specifically it meant in the context that it was used. So I did some research. I was reading some of the other writings that she's done. And one of the writings that she said, it quoted, I know that there is something more needed to make this very unique experience that Black people have with ableism more clear. Still, I believe anti-Black ableism does not succeed in achieving the necessary clarity and that it may cause more harm to the effort being sought by those using the term. So I'm not, it sounds like she was the first person to use this term. And I, and I could be wrong. You can correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't seen much research or much information or enough conversations to be able to describe what it specifically means. I think her coming on or her having a conversation about what it specifically means, because even in that is her words um, verbatim in the writing that I was reading from her. So I think we need more clarity or I would need more clarity around this term before I would be able to actually use it and be able to provide you more information on how important this term is and what it means. Because what for me, what this means just from a whole is that we need more people saving a seat at the table for Black disabled voices to share their experiences. And also to add on what you were saying, we need to be talking about intersectionality and intersectionality as it relates to disability justice. One of the other things that I love that she brought up in, in another piece was she said we must find ways to name how ableism is uniquely felt and experienced by black people or we are not doing justice to how the long-term inescapable and inextricable bond between racism and ableism places black non-disabled black disabled and black people who are labeled disabled in mortal danger with no recourse so i would love to read more and continue to follow this term but it it just seems that there's not enough information and and she was stating that the people that are using the term may not be using it in the way that she initially had i guess envisioned the term being used i guess i didn't realize that that was a term that she had brought forth I think it's really interesting, and I would love to hear more from her on it. And I actually invited her to be a guest on the podcast, but her schedule is too busy. So that would have been awesome if at some point, maybe, I don't know, or or if she comes out with more. I, I could be completely wrong, like I said, but I couldn't find much on the term outside of her posts on her website. Yeah, well, that's all that I found. That's exactly what I found. So, yeah, I'm going to have to do some more research on that. Um, but I do think it is a very unique experience. You know, when you look at the layers of intersectionality, how one experiences each of those oppressions in a different way, but all in relationship to one another. As you had stated earlier, and I kind of want to go back to this, the disability terminology that we use, like we're just talking about anti-Black ableism, that may be something that Talila A. Lewis has coined. Maybe people are using it appropriately or differently than how she had envisioned it or imagined it. We'll have to do some more research around that. But when we look at other more common terms like neurodivergent or neurodiverse, 
disabled people or people with disabilities, able-bodied or non-disabled, accessibility, usability, or inclusion. How do we effectively choose the words and language? And you touched on it a little bit previously, but how do we effectively choose with our intentions the language and the words that we use so that we can actually drive inclusion and equity for people with disabilities? A lot of times when we have these different words that are created, and I think it kind of goes back to what I was, what we were talking about earlier, they're used at different points in times. And then when they're no longer representative of the words that we may use currently, it takes time for shift to occur. And a lot of times that shift is not aligned with how quickly we want the words to not be used anymore. So it creates this disconnect because on one hand, we are saying these words should not be used or to use this word instead. But on the other hand, these words are still used in definitions or important government documents. So for example, I used to use the word special needs. This was years ago. So it was right after I got out of grad school. I wrote an article. One of the articles was about incorporating children with special needs into gymnastics. And that was the exact title. Now, if I were to have write, written that same article, I would title it Incorporating Children with Disabilities into Gymnastics. I'm aware of that because I've continue to keep up on different research words, listening to people telling me their viewpoints and, and just doing my own research. But so according to the National Center on Disability and Journalism, special needs was popularized in the U.S. in the early 20th century during a push for special needs education to serve people with all kinds of different disabilities. So now, though, if you read on, on the website, the word special in relation to those with disabilities is now widely considered offensive. And, and so these are the things that and why it's important to continuing to have these ongoing conversations. Uh, accessibility looks different when, when you're out going to a restaurant and, and you need access to the if you're a wheelchair user and you need a ramp to access to get inside of the building. But if you're online and it could be different in terms of digitally how you're accessing a website to shop. So I think we have to look at settings because words take on different meanings when you're in different settings or locations. They take on different meanings depending on who you're talking to. Right. So if I'm writing a report, I may still need to use able-bodied or or special needs or special education or, or something along those lines, depending on the requirements. But if I'm out in the community with a, a family or something like that, and they've already shared with me, they don't like it when I say, oh, your child with special needs, they want me to say, um, disability, you know, those are all of the things that why it's important to have these ongoing conversations and why it's important to look at more than just the, the word. We have to look at all of the different things that surround the words that we use. You know, and the other thing is the Americans with Disabilities Act requires state and local governments and businesses and nonprofits who serve the public to provide an effective disability communications plan, right? This basically means that whatever these entities communicate, whether it be written or spoken, has to be equally clear and understandable for people with and without disabilities. So as a former hospital administrator and public information officer, as I said before, we called this plain language. We always said plain language works best. And recently, the nonprofit investigative news organizations ProPublica, which I actually think you shared this article with me, they launched an experiment using ultra accessible plain language in stories about disabilities. Can you 
help us to understand what plain language is and how would we incorporate this type of language into our personal and professional communication styles? So essentially plain language is keeping it simple. It's communication anyone can ideally be able to understand the first time they read or hear it. It's accessible. It reminds me of when I was working in the school systems, we would sit in IEP meetings or individualized educational plan meetings. And if we're talking to parents, there's specific terms in the speech language pathology world that a parent may be unfamiliar with because they're not in the speech language pathology field. So we needed to make the the language or and all the information in the words as simplistic as possible so that they could understand the important information that we are sharing. We can look at different industries and how in specific industries there's acronyms or words that you may use that may mean something completely different in a different industry. So when you're communicating to someone that may not be familiar with your industry or the words that you use, you're going to have to use some other type of words to make it so that the person can understand what you are talking about the first time around. Because if not, it becomes confusing. And ultimately, maybe the person you could lose the person that you're talking to. So plain language is ultimately about keeping it simple. So that anyone that picks up a document or anyone that's listening to you can ideally understand what you're talking about. As you touched upon, currently there are different industries and organizations who use different terminology when referring to and writing about disability. You and I learned during this process of of collaboration and partnering that the Associated Press, the American Psychological Association, and the Modern Language Association don't publish best practices or standards for effective disability communications. The only style guide that you and I were able to find was the National Center on Disability Journalism, NCDJ, at Arizona State University. You know, with a lack of clear standards and everyone using different words, disability inclusion and equity practitioners find themselves in this constantly evolving space. How do we overcome these challenges? I think my initial question was, would it be better to standardize the terms across industries? Is that something that we should be pushing towards? Is it better to have a variety of terminology because it's really specific to each industry? What are your thoughts? I think standardizing is always beneficial or having different systems in place, but just like anything else, these things change. It's it's ultimately we have to continue to, to stay flexible to be able to shift. It's just like if you're getting professional development courses on an annual basis, you are having to stay abreast of what's going on maybe in your field or, or things of that nature. So it's nice to, it's definitely nice to have standards because that's a great starting point, but it's just as important to take the time to educate yourself and, and listen to people with disabilities, listen in the community. There's a lot of different tools I know that we've talked about, and, and you shared one of them, with social media and all of these different things, you know, hashtags and alternative texts or alt texts, all of these things are important as well. So if, if we're talking about standardizing, you know, some of these are, are great ways as well if we're looking at social media. And a lot of times we have these different features. So alt taxes on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. But if we don't know what alt text is used for, and if we don't know where to find it, and if we've never even heard of it, there's where that education piece comes in, in terms of continuing to educate and share this information so that we can be more aware of how we can make tools uh, more accessible and how we can be more inclusive. 
You and I talked a lot about accessibility on social media platforms. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and I'm going to touch back on this a little bit more, is the hashtag, the use of hashtags. So I didn't realize that when we do hashtag everything lowercase, that when someone has an e-reader that may read that article to them, it will jumble up that message, right? So if I say hashtag works it will come out to them, hashtag all alerts. Whereas if we capitalize each individual word, so hashtag I, capital E, level, capital L, works, capital W, then that e-reader can actually read that statement to them in a way that they can understand and process, which I think is really cool. And so then we did some research to find out, um, would that change the algorithms or the search or could people not follow it? But it does not make a difference. But yet we still find that when we initially go to type in that hashtag, it comes up and auto-populates automatically to lowercase letters. To me, that seems like something that we could easily make accessible if we just auto-populated those with caps. Before I answer that, I think you may have meant screen reader. And that's why we have these conversations, right? We said, let's have the conversation. I said e-reader, it should be screen reader. We need to have these conversations and be okay and vulnerable to make mistakes. Exactly. Yes. And so what you were saying about the hashtags, I am not sure how how many times it takes before it's populated into the system. And so that's why I, I would think it would need to be something manual that would have to be done behind the scenes. But I'm not sure of all of those things because it probably not enough people are capitalizing because I didn't even realize it myself until we started delving in and having this conversation. So it has to be more people that are using it, or I imagine Twitter or LinkedIn and all of those other social media outlets have to go in behind the scenes and add that so it will start to populate that way. The other thing we talked about is website accessibility. For anyone listening that's not familiar with a screen reader, so the screen reader is a assistive technology or type of technology that assists um, a person who is blind or visually impaired to use their computer. And so that's what a screen reader is, a form of assistive technology. And so if you you don't have certain things like alt text or alternative text, which is the description of pictures. So if you post an image on Instagram, let's say, there is a feature in advanced settings, and you can Google how to add alt text. There's a feature in advanced settings where you can add alt text. And what you would do is you're going to type a description of the image that you're going to post, and it's conveying the main point of the image. Like, what is the image showing? What's the overall main point of the image? So that's why it's important to have these different things in place because we want everyone to be able to access the information um, that we're providing. And there's many other people as well that may use a uh, screen reader for assistive technology. So we want to make sure no one's left out when we're posting pictures or any of the other things that we do online, especially with everything being online now, everything everything it really is it really is everything at this point i feel like and these are pretty relatively simple things that we can do each day watch our hashtags add alt text i'm guilty of that i need to go back into a lot of my posts and actually add alt text um, because i wasn't aware of of the need for that accessibility tool either. So it's good for all of us to learn, again, have these conversations and learn. And again, we're being flexible, right? We're learning new terminologies. We're learning how to refer to things, definitions of words, all of these. And one of the things that you and I talked about is the importance of collaboration in this space. I think I wanna kind of tie that into uh, the building of trust 
also in this space because when we first started talking about uh, speech language pathology, you shared with me that it really is taught from a medical perspective that somewhat excludes the personal patient perspective and that experience. But we know that trust and collaboration, right, even between a patient and provider is so extremely important. I was recently at a neurologist visit and I needed to get fatigue medication filled and I needed to go through my MRI results and there were, it was a list of things. I'm very organized. I mean, I have a whole list. So I feel like when I come in the door, they're already kind of prickly paired because I've, I've over-prepared, I've researched, I'm a self-advocate. When we receive different words and language and even body language from our providers, a trust is betrayed. For example, my fatigue medication is a controlled substance. It's used for ADHD consistently, um, Adderall, and it's used for fatigue for people with multiple sclerosis. It has been so difficult for me just to get this prescription filled, given the nature of it. I felt very much like a drug seeker as I was asking my own provider to refill this prescription for me. Being put in that situation where you're constantly defending yourself and you feel defensive and shameful and guilty that you're asking for this and you're not getting what you need. So we we talk about that trust, right? And that trust for me that day was broken. When we look about the work we're doing, trust is the most important part of this work. And you bring this perspective to the work that you do with your company, The Resource Key. And you are actually bringing this perspective to the world of academia because you have talked about how we effectively build trust in this space. Can you share with our listeners the work that you do in that area? I think it's really important. Yeah. So the overall goal at The Resource Key is building inclusive and impactful brands through inclusive marketing and business coaching services. So that's the ultimate goal. And the priority is making sure that people with disabilities are included and making connections with these brands. Okay, so we're looking at the inclusion part and the accessibility piece. So through all of this work, we're building community, right? So I think that's one of the most important things just in general in businesses and in any type of setting is the community that you are building through the work that you are doing. So it's relationship building. You know, I have reached out and and created a team of incredible community experts that I work with. And, you know, that piece is really important because it's taking the time to listen, to learn from a different perspective outside of my my own. So the resource key community experts provide valuable resources about inclusion and accessibility in the community from their first person experiences. They also provide their industry expertise to contribute important information about why disability inclusion is important across all industries. So they're all in in different industries ranging from modeling to life coach to law. And so I think it goes back to what we were saying in terms of the plain language, because sometimes what happens and why you're able to communicate maybe better with one person than the other person is surrounding the words that we use. So that's why it was important collaborating with them, because they already are familiar with the industry terms as well. So they're able to have those conversations within their industries using the language that is familiar while embedding those pieces of how important it is with inclusion, accessibility, and including people with disabilities. So the work that we do is is based on branding, you know, marketing and all of those different things. But the most important work that I think we do is we're building and creating these safe spaces to cross-collaborate with other businesses across industries. All of these different things that I think are taken for granted sometimes when we are building, you know, the financial part isn't as important because, you know, it's your livelihood and all of those things. But the relationship part, I think, is very important because that is what's going to continue these important conversations. And it's also creating those spaces 
where you feel safe. You know, it takes, they always say it takes years, you know, sometimes to build trust, but it can take one day or, you know, a few words to lose that trust. So I think it's important that we continue to create these safe spaces and we continue to build these relationships so that we're also building stronger brands and stronger, you know, stronger businesses as well. I love that. I think it really ties into what you and I have talked about experience in this space, whether it be professional or personal, lived or otherwise. We've also talked about the importance of active listening, empathy, And I think these are all very important as we build trust in this space and important as we cross collaborate into different industries because the words that we use are different in each industry. Aligning those all to equity and inclusion is what I like, really like about what you said, because those terms are going to be different. People within the the industry have that experience. And if we can align with that to ensure that inclusion and equity piece, That's the most important. We build that relationship and we just build a larger movement to bring disability to the forefront of the greater conversation that we're having around diversity, equity, and inclusion, which often leaves disability completely out of the mix. So as we're wrapping this up today, uh, we've talked a lot about words, right? We've talked a lot about what we say in the context that we say it, and we also know how long we say something has an impact, right? That messaging, that consistent messaging has an impact. Using those words consistently over decades has an impact on people and the oppression that they face. Living with a disability, being a person of color with a disability, those experiences are all different and multi-layered. So it really helps when we understand how the words that we use may impact those around us. So as we wrap this up, what do you want our listeners to take away from our conversation today that they can take into the world and start making change, don't have to have a big platform or a company that's doing this work? What can we just do in our daily lives? Yes. So you just brought up a great point. I always say my definition that I always think of inclusion is inclusion is an action and it's included in our daily habits, right? So I think one of the things to keep in mind is, of course, the most important thing, you know, hire, hiring people with disabilities, including them on your boards and in leadership roles, um, you know, be patient. Patience is just so important, I think, with any of this. You're going to get frustrated along the way, I'm sure. And also, too, you may not get the response when you're trying to learn new words, because what happens a lot of times is we're pumped up, we're ready to learn and 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 listen to other voices. And we may ask someone the wrong thing, and, and they may say it in a way that is af- offensive to us or hurtful. But you have to understand, too, the context behind that. You know, people with disabilities have been fighting for years and years for quality, equity, all of these different things. So just because you may not get the response or the excitement that you want when you're asking about words or you say the wrong thing doesn't mean that it it means to stop doing that important work and having these important conversations because there's a lot of emotions behind all of this, right? So we have to make sure that we continue to even when we don't get the response that we may be looking for, I think it's important to keep going, right? So because we are all going through our own war journey and along each person's journey, you're going to meet people that may be on the same page as you than others. And so you may describe that moment as, oh, wow, they just get it. But we have to be 100% clear that not every person we encounter is just going to get it and be able to be up to date on the current shifts or the changes in words or the language that's occurring at a rapid rate. So it is imperative that we're intentional and that we're listening and being intentional about inclusion, right? So I think it's important to save a seat at the table for people that don't look like you or have the same perspective as you. So that saving that seat, it's intentional, right? the person's not just pulling a seat up at the table, you're saving them because you want to engage, you want to have these conversations. So I think that's important. You know, the small things that you can be doing, say hi, wave, 
to people that you usually may avoid because you're uncomfortable or you don't know what to say. Start by waving, acknowledging them, you know, saying hi. And um, maybe you see the same person every day and the person may use sign language to communicate. You could learn this, a sign for how to say hi or how are you doing? You know, those, those are different small actionable items that can be incorporated in your daily life. It doesn't have to be big things to start out with because the small things are just as important as the big things. I think it's also important to educate young people because they're watching, observing everything and and they are, are learning from us as well as they're doing work too in educating. I had a student years ago and one of the things I'll never forget is I overheard my student talking to another student and they said, I don't understand why just because I'm blind, people always get nervous using the word see and look in conversation when speaking to me. I think it is so funny because I hear it in their voice that they're nervous saying those words. I always have to reassure them that I am blind, but I still use those words too when referring to things in my environment. And I thought this was so powerful because it's like that education piece just from being educated too, just by being a bystander as well. You know, you may overhear conversations like that just in your daily routine. So you can take those things in as well, because a lot of times we're not going to say certain things if we're in uncomfortable settings. But if you're talking to a friend, you know, in that case, the student was talking to a friend of theirs, you're going to say some of these things that are just as important as, you know, the sitting down part as well with people with disabilities. So we have the power to use our words to make a positive impact, to bring about positive change, and most importantly, to build up community. So if you remember nothing else that we talked about, um, I think it's important to remember that we do not need to get stuck on which words to use, that we freeze up and don't do anything because there's so much work to be done to continue to move these important conversations forward about diversity, inclusion, accessibility, and equity for all. I think that you said that so beautifully. When I first started playing wheelchair basketball and I first started working at Rancho, the hospital, I would find myself feeling very awkward saying to a friend of mine who's a wheelchair user, saying, hey, you want to run over to Starbucks or you want to walk over to Starbucks and we'll grab something? You know, and you almost find yourself wanting to say it and then and then you try to say or roll or roll. Or, you know, you're like, wait, uh, do you want to just go there? So, you know, <laughs> the comfortable thing and the great thing is when um, we build up this trust in this space and we can feel comfortable having these conversations where they can just laugh at me and be like, yeah, Sarah, it's fine. Just say, do you want to walk over there quick? You know, you don't have to think about it for 10 minutes before you say it. So that's something that we really need to take into consideration because people do pick up on your body language or your, uh, you know, hesitancy to say something. I think I just hesitated as we were speaking on this podcast. It was about the screen readers. Anyway, the other thing, the other story I want to share really quickly, this was a big learning opportunity for me. I had a client in Colorado, intellectual and developmental disability service provider, and I was, you know, business development with them. And I had spent a lot of time with physical disabilities, not so much with IDD, intellectual developmental disabilities. So I hadn't been around this community as much, but I was really learning a lot. I was engaging and I was really enjoying the people and getting to know them and all of that. So I think I'm really getting this, right? You know, it's been a few months and I'm getting into this. And one day I stop at Target, I think it was on the way home from meeting with their CEO and I'm on the way home, stop at Target and I go in and I see a woman with an adult child with IDD and he starts throwing a fit. And you could tell that his mother was extremely embarrassed. She didn't really know kind of how to handle it. I was also in the aisle at the same time. So what I did, how I handled it was that I actually went into a different aisle. And my thinking behind that was, I think that she already feels uncomfortable, and so I should go into the other aisle to give her some space with her son. I was thinking it was a very respectful action or behavior that I did. Flip side of that, 
as I was driving home later, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if I made her feel more ostracized and more uncomfortable because I didn't acknowledge, I didn't say hello, I didn't say, I didn't say anything. And so I started to think about how my lack of words uh, and using my words to include somebody made an impact that day. And when I when I talked to the CEO the next day, I asked him, I said, what should I do better in the next situation? And he suggested and some of the parents suggested that I could say, hey, you got this or, you know, it looks like a hard day, but you're doing great. You know, we all go through days like this as opposed to not acknowledging or or having that conversation. So I think having some self-awareness is really important. I think we need to ask those questions and and really be intentional with our words and our actions. Today we were talking more about words, but yeah, I just love all that you just said. You summed it up beautifully, what we were talking about today. And I just am so thankful that you've been such a support in this process. There have been times where I literally couldn't figure out the technology or couldn't find the right guest for this, or I didn't feel the inherent intent behind the podcast was upheld. So I, I changed the launch date. There were a lot of uh, change and evolution throughout this podcast. And I just feel like you have supported me. And I'm just really grateful. And I thank you for being here with me today and sharing all of your knowledge and your insights that you have, because it's incredible. I want to tell our listeners, if you'd like to learn more about what Jordan is doing in this space, then please check out the Resource Key website, which you can find at www.theresourcekey.com. And Jordan, is there anywhere else they should look for you or for the Resource Key? That would be the best starting point. If you're on LinkedIn, that's how Sarah and I met. I'm on there every day posting and continuing to learn and and do the work myself to research and continue to inform myself. Uh, So yeah, the the resourcekey.com is the best place to go. And I want to thank you, Sarah, so much for having me on and for our continued conversations that we have had and just for being the incredible person that you are and also doing the important work that you continue to do. Um, I'm very appreciative of the work that you're doing. I'm appreciative to know you and just continuing these conversations. That was incredible. And I really appreciate you saying that. And I think that, you know, it's kind of funny. I don't know if I told you this, but I kind of think to myself on LinkedIn, like, what would Jordan do? (laughs) (laughs) Overthink everything. So I look back and I'm like, how did Jordan alt text this? How did Jordan post this? Oh, what hashtags did Jordan use? So it's been just incredible. Yeah, it really has. <laughs> I'm so glad we met. It's been just fun, right? It's like, <laughs> I try, I'm try. i trying to, for everyone out there listening, I'm trying to get my LinkedIn game up to Jordan's level. I'm, I'm on it. <laughs> and it's incredible. Yeah, we've had a great time. And it really has been LinkedIn. And now I feel like I just want to hug you. And I feel like I can't wait to meet you in person. Gosh, the amazing things that uh, virtual video calls can have. It feels like I, I know you and, we, and we've hung out, you know. I feel like it when we do meet in person, it's just going to pick up wherever we left off. Totally. I can't wait. I really can't wait. I know that we will continue this conversation and maybe you will come back with us and talk about uh, words are powerful around disability justice. I would really love that. So I hope you consider that. Yes, I, I, I feel like words can have multiple parts. Yes. Yes, and we have seen that firsthand. So I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much. And once again to our listeners, thank you for spending your time with us and joining the Incluse This conversation and movement. Incluse This is brought to you by iLevel Communications, LLC. iLevel is a California-based woman and disability-owned small business committed to having critical conversations at iLevel 
that are necessary to move disability to the forefront of the greater diversity conversation. If you'd like to learn more about the work we're doing, please visit the website at www.ilevel.works. You can also email me directly with any podcast episode ideas or questions and comments at sarah at ilevel.works. Remember to put your disability lens on when you look at the world and tune in next week for another stimulating conversation on Includes This, the podcast that's really a movement. Take care and be well. Like I'm a